You're listening to audio from the archive of Highland Baptist Church. For more information about Highland, go to hbcwaco.org. So we're walking through the book of Judges uh, this fall, looking at a series called The Conquerors. We're going to go up pretty much to the chapter we're going to be in today, although we'll kind of camp out here in chapter 6 for, for several weeks. Then we'll stop there in the book of Judges. We'll come back and pick it up maybe again in about two or three years or so. So there's your teaser. You have to be here for the next two or three years if you want to hear the rest of the story of the book of Judges. We'll come back eventually on one of these days. Kind of our launching point for this entire series has simply been this statement. All of us in this room will either be conquered by life or we will be conquerors in life through the power of God. It is true of every person in this room today. This week, you'll either be conquered by life, by the temptations of life, by the sin that's before you. You'll be conquered by stress or by overwhelming anxiety this week. You'll be conquered by all the deadlines, and your schedule will rule you instead of you ruling your schedule. Or you, through the presence and the power and the might of Jesus Christ, will become more than a conqueror this week through his power and through his spirit. I think that's the two options for all of us here today, either conquered by life or conquerors in life. And so what we're doing, we're going back to the Old Testament, the book of Judges, and discovering some of these judges, some of these men and women who were conquerors, called up by God uh, to live a life of victory, to live a life where they were, through the power of God, conquerors in life. So with your Bible this morning, would you mind turning with me, please, the book of Judges. It's seven books in, in the, in the Old Testament, and go to chapter 6 with me, please. Judges chapter 6 will begin at the very beginning of that chapter, Judges 6-1. I can make you a commitment today that we'll be only in Judges chapter 6. And so if you'll open your Bible and keep it open until like the very, very last amen this morning, I promise we'll continue uh, in this story, in this narrative, in this chapter And so we won't turn anywhere else, so open your Bible if you don't mind, or fire up your smartphone, your pad that you have with you today, and let's go to Judges chapter 6 and go to verse 1, please. Again, we'll stop right there, didn't get very far. Again, this is the cycle, right? Again, we're about to see what the Israelites have been doing. Again, they did evil, it says, in the eyes of the Lord. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Before we judge them too harshly, it's our story as well. It's our testimony as well. We continue to grow in grace, and then we kind of fall back a step. Then we take two steps forward in the grace and the power of God, and then we, we make a decision, and we have a thought. We fall back into some old patterns that we were saved out of. It's the same thing with the Israelites. They're under the provision and the promises and the blessing, the hand of God. But again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands. So there's the response of God, right? We, do, we have the rebellion of people. They did evil. The response of God, he gives them over into the hands of the Midianites. I'll stop right there and explain the Midianites to you for a second. Uh, The Midianites are actually half-brothers to the Israelites. They share a dad. Um, Abraham is their common father. And so the Midianites and the Israelites are actually long-lost, if you will, um, half-brothers sharing the same dad. Um, After Sarah died, Abraham remarried. Remember, um, Abraham was probably 125 years old when Sarah died. And so he decided to get married again at age 130, right? I mean, why not? If you're 130 years old and you still have 45 more years to live, he's going to live to be 175, might as well get married again. So he's going to marry, this time it's a girl named Keturah. And he and Keturah, over the course of the next 40 years, have six kids. You remember this dad's 130, 140, 150, 155 years old. Six more kids. 
I won't preach on that or make a comment about that, but that's amazing. Six more kids. Here's a guy, he's in his 130 plus years of age, and one of the boys that they have is a boy by the name of Midian. And so Abraham is the father of Midian through Keturah. And of course, Abraham is the father of the Israelites as, as well through the promise of Jacob through Israel himself. And so the Midianites and the Israelites are actually half-brothers. And God has literally sold them or brought them or carried them over into the hand of the Midianites. Verse 2, because of the power of Midian, because it was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in the mountain cliffs and caves and the strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the other eastern peoples, they invaded the country. They camped on the land. They ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. Stop right there. This is actually a completion of a prophecy that God had given to his servant Moses back in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Back in chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, God comes to Moses and tells Moses, you tell the people this prophecy. Now, just to give you a little timeline, when Moses gave this prophecy in Deuteronomy chapter 28, it was 200 years before the events of Judges chapter 6. So before our, our story today, our narrative today, 200 years before chapter 6, uh, the, the, the unfolding of chapter 6, Moses stood before the people of God and said, let me tell you something. If you disobey God, here's what's going to happen. If you disobey God, foreigners from another land will come into your land and destroy all your crops and livestock. Second prophecy God gave Moses to give to the people of God in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And if you want to, you can take some time this week and go back to Deuteronomy 28 and make sure I'm saying this correctly. Because the second prophecy that God gave Moses was, you tell the Israelites, if they disobey God, they will build houses, but they won't live inside of them. We see it unfolding right here. The third thing God told Moses to tell the Israelites this prophecy was, if you disobey God, I will send upon you a plague of locusts. So the prophecy 200 years later has been fulfilled. Because here are the Israelites. They have had their land completely oppressed, taken over by these eastern peoples, by the pagans. And here we see it's the Amalekites and the Midianites and other eastern people. Their land has now been taken over, their crops taken over, just as God had told Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 28. They have built homes, but they no longer build, live in those homes. They live up in the mountains instead. And not only do they live up in the mountains and not their homes, just like Moses had told the people of, of God, the Israelites, now the people who are coming in are just like, did you read that in Judges chapter 6? Just like a swarm of locusts. So God's word, God's prophecy has been fulfilled here. It was impossible, the rest of the passage says the middle of verse 5, it was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. And Midian so impoverished or so overwhelmed the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. There's that cycle again. They rebelled. God has responded. And the third R word, they have repented. They are now crying out to the Lord for help because they are living in so much fear. If you're taking notes today, you should have found some inside of the bulletin that you received when you walked in. Here's the first thing I want to share with you today. Fear moves us away from building our lives on the promises of God and experiencing the fullness of God. When we live in fear and we live in this constant anxiety of what is next, 
and we're overwhelmed with fearful things and fearful thoughts, what does that do? It does the exact same thing it did to the Israelites. It moved them off of the promised land that God had given them, just like fear tends to move us off of the promises of God. And the Israelites were no longer experiencing the fullness of life that God had for them. Fear does the same thing in our lives as well. In a congregation, again, in a size like this, some of you walked in here today, and fear has controlled you this past season. You're overwhelmed with fear, with anxiety. You're overwhelmed with fear because the uncertainty of what is next for you, what this week might look like, what the rest of the year might look like, what relationships are looking like, what schoolwork is looking like, what finances are looking like. And you walked in here today, and honestly, fear has been your operator the past few weeks. Can I tell you from God's word, excuse me, what fear does? Fear moves us off the promises. Fear moves us away from this full life that God has for us. God had promised the Israelites this land. God had promised them the life that was before them, but they were so fearful of the Midianites, so fearful of the Amalekites, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord over and over again. Isn't it interesting that evil produced fear in them? It's the same for all of us in this room. We grow anxious, we grow fearful, that operates our lives, and it moves us off of God's promises. Why? Because our our eyes are now fixed on the problem, not on the provision. Fear has a way of of doing that. Continue on in the narrative here. Look at Judges chapter 6. Let's continue on in verse 7. Now, when the Israelites cried out to the Lord, so that's the part of their repentance, they have rebelled, God has responded. They were repenting when the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, because of the Midianites, he sent them a, uh-oh, prophet. The only time a prophet is mentioned in the book of Judges is right here. You remember every other time the people have called out for help from God, God has said, I'll send you a helper, I will give you a conqueror. I will give you a judge. I will give you Oth Nile. I'll give you Deborah. Um, I'll give you Ehud. Um, I will give you um, uh, the first two, Caleb and Oth Nile, the father and the, and, and the son-in-law. I will bring out these judges, and I will let them be the warriors for you. But this time, listen carefully, Highland. This time, God did not send a conqueror. He sent a preacher. And he said, before I tell you that I'm going to deliver you, I need to tell you what got you into this place to begin with. So now, this prophet, and let me warn you, He is fired up. He is fast and he is furious. And here we go. The prophet's about to speak in verse 8. The prophet said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. God says, I brought you up out of Egypt. I brought you out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt. I snatched you from the hand of all of your oppressors. I drove them before you, and I gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord. I am your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. If you can't say amen, you can say ouch, right? Because that's probably what the people felt. Like, whoa. In the past... We cried out, and you just sent us a soldier. And like we went to war, and we defeated them. But this time, God says, I'm not going to rescue out of this until first you understand from a prophet, from a preacher, why you're in this situation to begin with. And the prophet does this. He begins to unpack for the people of God the root of the problem. And here's the first portion of the problem. God, and I probably should put my notes there, only God has kept his end of the agreement. 
It's been only God who's been acting on behalf of the Israelites, not the Israelites acting on behalf of in obedience to God. God has kept his end of the bargain. God has kept his end of the agreements. The prophet stands there. I don't know if you counted how many times God used the proper pronoun I or me or the understood I here in this. I counted it this morning seven times. I have done this for you. I have brought you out of Egypt. I have brought you out of the snatches of slavery. I am the one who drove out the people before you. I gave you this land that you're on. I am the Lord your God. I have done these things for you, but you have not listened to me. Again, God reminds through the prophet he has kept his end of the agreement. And really what the prophet is saying, I put this in your notes as well under number two this morning, we usually find ourselves in a troubling place because we have been disobedient to God. And I know a lot of you came to church today hoping for a good word of grace, and we're going to get there. (laughs) But before we get to grace, sometimes you have to stop at truth first. And so the prophet comes and says, oh, I'm going to give you some truth. Now, God, in his grace, he's going to rescue you because he's always a God of rescue. But before you get that grace, you better swallow this truth first. And here it is. You're in a troubling place because you have been disobedient to God. God comes, by the way, church, full of grace and full of truth. Who else came full of grace and full of truth? Jesus Christ, John chapter 1, full of grace and full of truth. And you and I, we love the grace, don't we? We live in it, we rejoice in it, we dance in it, we lift our hands in grace, and all of a sudden truth comes and we kind of tuck ourselves down. Whoa, truth. It'd be like this. Let's say this coming Friday night, you're speeding down Dally Mills Drive here in Waco. And not just like 45, 50, 50, I'm talking about 75 miles an hour. You're going down Valley Mills. And you're running every red light, and you are disobeying every traffic sign, and you're completely ignoring all the speed limit signs that are there for you, and you're flying down Valley Mills. It doesn't matter if the cameras are on you or people are honking at you. You don't care about all the warning signs around you. You're going as fast as you can down Valley Mills, and then you make your way around that lakeshore curve, and you come around that curve, and there's a, there's a cat in front of you, and so you speed up. No, that's not what you should do. There's a, there's a dog in front of you, so you slow down the best you can, and in trying to slow down for that little puppy dog crossing the road. You lose control of your car, and you flip it like three times, but you're wise enough at least to have your seatbelt on. So here you are upside down in your car, and you're hanging there, and you say, dear God, please help me. Please save me. I'm in all this world of hurt. Then all of a sudden, you're very happy because you hear the sirens behind you, and you're thinking, an ambulance is finally coming. But it's not an ambulance. It's a police officer. And he gets out of his car, and he walks over to you, and you're hanging upside down by your seatbelt. And the officer sticks his head in the window, and you look to him, and it's a little awkward feeling that you're upside down, looking at him upside down, and he says, are you okay? And you go, well, I'm, I'm okay. I'm hoping for an ambulance to come. And the police officer says, oh, the ambulance is coming. The EMT is coming. The nurse is coming. The doctor is coming. But before that ambulance of grace comes, I'm going to write you a ticket of truth, first of all. Because we saw you speeding down Valley Mills. We saw you breaking all the speed limits. We saw you going through the red lights. We saw you uh, uh, recklessly driving down Lakeshore Drive. We saw how you lost control of your car and you flipped it. And so grace is coming. But before grace comes to help you, truth better tell you how you got in this place to begin with. Amen? Yeah, you don't want to amen that, do you? Because we, we like the ambulance 
We don't like the police officer. We like the grace. We often don't like the truth. And this time God says, I'm going to tell you why you got there, Israelites. Before the grace of a conqueror comes, we're going to meet him in a little bit. First of all, the prophet of truth needs to come and tell you why you're in this place. We find ourselves, church, in a troubling place. We usually find ourselves, and whatever the word is, more than usually, almost always, we find ourselves in a troubling place because we have been disobedient to God. So God brings a conqueror, an interesting guy. I'm going to introduce you to him this morning. His name is Gideon. If you grew up in church, you've been around church at all, you've probably heard the name Gideon before. You may not know that a few years ago, biblical archaeologists there in, in Israel found a picture of Gideon. Have you read this before? Have you seen this before? They found a drawing, a picture of Gideon. Um, I brought it with me today for you to see the, the artist rendering my gosh, from 2,000 years ago of what Gideon probably looked like. If you don't mind looking at the screen behind me, let's see, let's see Gideon. There he is. That's Gideon right there. If you're under the age of 20, ask someone over the age of 40 who that is. But that's, that's Barney Fife from Andy Griffith, right? No one plays a fearful man better than Don Knotts. Every TV show, every movie he is in, he is always shaky, he's always nervous. <laughs> Wouldn't it be just like God to call up Barney Fife to lift the Israelites out of the oppression of the Midianites. But isn't that, isn't that the theme of the book of Judges? God always calls people that you and I would never choose. He chooses Caleb, an old man who's not even a Jew. He chooses Othniel, an old man who's not even a Jew. Uh, he chooses Shamgar, some man from some questionable background. Uh, he chooses Ehud, who was a left-handed accountant. He chooses Deborah, a lady to serve as a great judge. Then he calls up a lady who has a ham in her hand and a, a tent peg named Jael, and she drives a, a nail through Sisera, the enemy of the people of God. God uses people that you and I would never choose. And now he's choosing this guy that has one bullet in his pocket, right? If you ever grew up watching Andy Griffith, this is Barney Fife right here. Let's look into the life of Gideon together. Look at Judges chapter 6, verse 11 with me. So the angel of the Lord, let's stop right there again. Again, didn't get very far. Your pastor's opinion, and you can disagree with me, the angel of the Lord is Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Jesus. He was incarnate with flesh on in Bethlehem. We see that, of course, later on in the, in the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus is born. I believe in the Bible when it says the angel of the Lord, that's actually Jesus. Because it's not an angel of the Lord. And we're going to see in a little bit, anytime the angel of the Lord appears in the Old Testament, the people tremble. They're afraid. They call him Lord. They call him Sir. I actually believe it was Jesus in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I thought that was the fourth person in the fire. I think back in the Old Testament when Jacob was wrestling, he was wrestling with Jesus Christ himself. I believe that this is Jesus. Now, you may disagree with me, but I have the microphone right now, so I'm saying this is Jesus right here. The angel of the Lord, Jesus, I believe, came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah. Not Oprah. This is not the talk show hostess. This is Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abiazite, Abiazrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. And when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, Yahweh, Gibor, Hail, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Some of your translations, valiant warrior, valiant soldier. Here's our fearful man named Gideon. 
he is down in a hole in the ground. He's, a, he's afraid. A wine press would be a hole in the ground. So if you're wondering what a wine press looks like, it was a hole in the ground. So he was under the ground. He was fearful for his life. He was fearful of the Midianites. He was frustrated with God, we'll discover here in a little bit. He actually didn't even have a full faith in God. So he's in a hole in the ground, and the Lord comes to him. I believe, again, it was Jesus, an angel of the Lord or messenger of the Lord comes to him and says, hey, Yahweh is with you. God is with you, and he sees you as a Gabor Hael, a valiant, mighty soldier warrior. I wrote this in your notes this morning about the presence of God, and I purposely made it in first person so you could write this down for your own life and your own biography this week. Fear can turn to absolute peace when I realize and believe the presence of God. We're going to see this happening later on in the life of Gideon. He was a fearful man. Some of you may have walked in with fears today, uncertainty today, anxiety today. He was a fearful man, and yet the angel of the Lord, your pastor thinks it's Jesus, comes to him and says, God's with you, and you are a mighty warrior. Our fear can begin to dissipate. Our fear begins to leave us when we believe and we realize the presence of God is around us. Now, what was Gideon doing down here in the hole? I'll put this in your notes. I think it's important for us to see this because we might see our own lives in this as well. Gideon was acting with no purpose. That's the first thing Gideon was doing. He was living a life of no purpose that day when Jesus, an angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, came to him. He was living life with no purpose. Now, how do we know he had no purpose that day? Well, let me just tell you this. You don't thresh wheat in a hole in the ground. Some of you who grew up around farms, you know that. With a winnowing fork, you pick up the wheat and you throw it into the air on a mountaintop or in a valley or in a wide open plain where there's wind. So the chaff can be blown away and the true wheat falls back down to, to the ground. You don't thresh wheat in a hole in the ground where there's no wind. So what was Gideon really doing? He was taking a winnowing fork, throwing the wheat into the air. The wheat and the chaff both were falling right back on top of him because there's no wind in a hole in the ground. He was living a life that you and I might call insanity, an insane life, right? Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results every time. And so this man, Gideon, he was living a life with no purpose. He was doing nothing in his life in that hole in the ground except staying busy. I'm going to repeat that one more time. He was doing nothing with his life except the pretense of just being busy. Does that paint a picture of some of you in this room today? Feel like you're just living a life with no purpose, just kind of going through the motions. You're trying to stay busy so you don't get depressed. You're trying to stay busy so people don't understand that you're living life with no purpose. Or maybe trying to talk your way out of having a purposeless life. That was Gideon. And what was putting him there? Fear, uncertainty, anxiety. He was living a life with no purpose. Not only that, he was responding to fear. He had the fear of the Midianites. He had the fear of the Amalekites. He had the fear of these other eastern people who had crossed over into the promised land. And so Gideon is so nervous. He is so afraid that he is living life, again, operated by fear. The third thing Gideon was doing was that he was missing out on God's plan for his life. I think this is what Gideon was doing, and it may sound familiar to a lot of our stories in here today. He was separating himself from other people. He was trying to stay busy. He was operating in fear, and he isolated himself 
to somehow forget the fear, to somehow forget the fact that he had no purpose in his life. I, I see it a whole lot as a pastor, let me tell you. Men and women, and not only younger men and women, older men and women, sometimes just as much, they will separate themselves from the people of God. They'll drop out of church. They'll pull themselves away from godly friendships. They'll pull themselves away from, from their family, their godly family. They pull themselves away from small group, pull themselves away from ABFs, pull themselves away from connection groups because they're living in so much fear and living a life that they feel has so little purpose that they begin to isolate themselves from everybody else. That is what Gideon is doing. He's afraid, and so he's removing himself from daily life. And that's when God, perhaps Jesus himself, comes to him and says, God is with you, and you are a mighty warrior. Second thing I want you to see this morning is simply this. In Judges chapter 6, let's continue to read here in verse 13. The angel of the Lord comes to Gideon. Again, your preacher thinks it's Jesus and says, The Lord, Yahweh, is with you, mighty warrior. But, sir, can I plead with you, family at Highland, when the Lord speaks to you, don't let your first word back to him be but. Right? The Lord is with you, Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, the sovereign one, the almighty one who rules all things, who created all things seen and unseen. He has a word for you. Don't let your first word back to him be but. But, but sir, Gideon says, and here he starts it. If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all of his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. What is Gideon doing? He is throwing himself a pity party, right? Well, if there was a God, I guess he would be with me. I heard there was a God. My grandparents tell me about it. That he brought him out of Egypt. I've heard the story. But, but where is God now? Why, why, has all, why have all these things happened to us? Where is God? And I love verse 14. Because <laughs> Gideon just said, where is God and look who speaks to him in verse 14. The Lord. The angel's now gone. Jesus is now gone. In your Bible, when it says the Lord, that L-O-R-D should be capitalized inside of your Bible. Because this is the proper name of God. Yahweh, or later on the Germans made it Yehovah, Jehovah. Yahweh himself, he's identified himself. Now Yahweh turns to Gideon which I love because Gideon has just said, where is God? And God goes, here I am. I'm turning right to you, and I'm going to say this to you. You go. Go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I, Yahweh, not sending you? And here he goes again, but Lord. Can I also encourage you never to hear the word of the Lord and say, but Lord? Because now Gideon is about to offer up what he thinks should happen instead of what God says should happen. That's never a wise move. When the God of the universe has said this is going to happen, in fact, it's almost impossible to say but Lord or no Lord, right? Because once you call him Lord, he's the master. He's the owner. He's the boss of all things. But Gideon, again, our fearful man says, but Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. And the Lord answered him, I will be with you. And you will strike down all the Midianites together. Here's the second thing I want you to see this morning. 
again, I put it in a personal pronoun for you. I will see myself the way God sees me when I realize and believe in the presence of God. I will see myself the way God sees me when I believe in his presence and I realize his presence and I realize his word and I believe his word. Church, if we could only see ourselves the way that God sees us. Let me say this, and this may be something that a few people in here need to hear, and I pray that a lot of you receive this well today. God sees things in you that you don't see in yourself. God sees things in you that you don't see in yourself. I mean, Gideon didn't see this in himself. He doesn't even believe in the hand of God in the present day. He is so fearful that he's in a hole in the ground. And yet God looks at him and says, wait a minute, you're a Gabor Hael. You're a mighty warrior. You're a valiant soldier. You're going to raise up an army of Israelites, and you're going to slay all the Midianites together. I see something in you, God says, that you don't see in yourself. What does God see in you? It would be a great question for you to ask him this week. And then go to God's word. Listen, go to God's word and let God define you this week instead of the world. Let Jesus define who you are this week instead of other people. Now Gideon has all these excuses. I'm going to throw these out because they probably sound very familiar to many of us in this room. The first excuse that Gideon gives is God's not present. Remember back in verse 13, he goes, there there is no God. He's not here. Where is his hand? Now he used to exist because I've heard about him. He pulled our forefathers out of Egypt. But where is God now? And isn't that often our response when tragedy hits? After a 9-11 or after a report of cancer or after a friend is killed in a driving accident? After our company has to declare bankruptcy? After a friend has betrayed us? After a terrible breakup? Don't we always say, God, where are you? Where are you in all of this? It's the common excuse that that Gideon used, even though God was calling Gideon out of that hole and into victorious life and back onto the promises of God, isn't it interesting that God, that Gideon now puts the focus back on God and throws the problem back on him. God, none of this would happen if you existed, if you had been here, if you would have heard our cries. Second excuse he gives is this is impossible. Look at verse 15 again Judges chapter 6, verse 15, he says, uh, but Lord, how can I save Israel? The question here is, you're telling me, a fearful man, I'm in a hole in the ground, throwing wheat up in the air, it's landing back on top of me. I want you to get this picture in your mind. And here's this fearful man who feels so weak, who feels so overwhelmed with life, so overwhelmed with fear, he is again throwing this wheat in the ground, the chaff has fallen back on top of him, and God comes to him and says, you're going to deliver Israel. Of course, his first response is, me? Have you seen me, God? Have you seen where I am? Do you see how I live out of fear? This sounds impossible. I have a list of a billion things I love about God, but somewhere in the top ten is he loves to do the impossible. In fact, Jesus put it this way, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Do not tell the God of the universe who threw the stars into space, who can raise his hands and call them to sing, cause them to sing, who can call them out by names. Do not tell the God who has walked on the depths of the sea, who created all things, who has storehouses of snow in his heavens. Do not tell him that this God can't do all things. Our God is a God who deals joyfully 
and impossibilities. Look at the third thing, because a lot of us in this room, we use this. I am inferior. I'm inferior. Gideon goes back to God and says, oh, you can't use me because I'm messed up. I'm, I'm broken. I'm an inferior person, so certainly there's somebody else out there who's, who's brave, who's not hiding in a hole in the ground, who has a strong background, who has a strong family, but I'm not your guy, God. Because what does he say right here? I'm from the tribe of Manasseh. Now, you may know this. You may not know this. When Gideon said this, I knew we know exactly what he was trying to say. Manasseh was the only split tribe in the 12 tribes of Israel. On the eastern side of the Jordan River, there were three tribes. The tribe of Manasseh, then the tribe of, of, of Gad, then the tribe of Reuben. The other portion of the tribe of Manasseh was on the other side of the river, divided by a small tribal boundary of the tribe of Gad. And so there's the tribe of Manasseh, the tribe of Gad, the Jordan River, and then the other side of the river, we have the other half of the tribe of Manasseh, or the sons of Joseph, the same, same tribe. And so when, when Gideon says, wait a minute, I'm from the tribe of Manasseh, what he is saying, and this will sound familiar to some of you, I'm coming from a split family. I come from a background where my, my tribe isn't together. I have some of my family over here and some of my family way over here. I come from a split family. You want to call a man like me? God, do you know what tribe I belong to? I belong to the tribe of Manasseh. I come from a bad background. I come from a split family. And not only that, look what, what Gideon says. He says, my clan or my family, we're the weakest of this, of this split tribe. So not only do I have a weak tribe, you would not believe how weak my family is. Now, when he puts the word weak right there, it's the same word for the word feeble or the word poor in Hebrew. I come from a poor broken, feeble background. My tribe is a split family. And look what, look what Gideon says on top of all that. This is how inferior he feels. Split family, a split tribe, poor family. What does he say? And I'm the weakest of all of my weak family. <laughs> God, you don't want me. In fact, there's a word in Hebrew. You might want to write this in your Bible somewhere. It's an interesting word. It's to, uh, to transliterate it out. It's the, the, the letter W-E. So W-E. This is what he is saying. W-E. And there's a, a little slash, then another E, and then the three letters N-I-E. Weenie. I'm just one big weenie. That's what he is saying. I'm sorry you have that written in your Bible now for, you know, for the years to come. You look and go, why does it have the word weenie written here in my, in my Bible? That's what he is saying. I am one big weenie. I don't want to be the guy that you call out. I'm from a split tribe. I'm from a family this week. I'm from a weak person. I apologize if you wrote that in pen in your Bible. And you're like, how do I get, get rid of this now inside, inside of my Bible? This is a weak man from a weak tribe, from a split tribe, and God comes to him and says, you're a mighty warrior. He goes, not me. I'm a wimp. I'm fearful. I'm broken. We're poor. We are feeble. You can't use me. And I'll tell you something, church, and listen, that's when God goes, perfect. You're the man I want. You're the woman I want. You're broken from a split family. You're afraid. You're uncertain. You don't think you have enough strength to do this. Perfect. God often loves to use people who have no confidence in the flesh. He says, I will use a man. I will use a woman like you. Let's wrap this up. Number three, five of the strongest words of God are these five words, I will be with you. Church, listen seriously for a second. Those are the words of a covenant God. I will be with 
you. You want to see it in the story? Go back to verse 12 with me one more time. The angel of the Lord, I believe Jesus, said, Yahweh is with you. The Lord is with you. Look at verse 14. The Lord, Yahweh, now himself steps in and looks to Gideon and says, you go in that strength that you have. I am sending you, he says in verse 14. Look at verse 16 again. The Lord, Yahweh, is still speaking. The God of heaven and earth, the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, said, I will be with you. Got a big week in front of you? God's with you. Overwhelmed with life? With your kids? With your marriage? God is with you. Not sure what you're going to do after you graduate? God is with you. I captured about 80% of you just then, right? What am I going to do after I graduate? God is, is with you. Been given the report of cancer? God is with you. Been served divorce papers? God is with you. In God's strength, trying to get out of addiction or homosexuality, For ungodly friendships, God is with you. It's the words of a covenant God. He's with us. Would you bow your head, please, and let's pray together. God, we rejoice in grace. But as children, we certainly need truth. And I thank you for the truth of your word this morning, God, that sometimes before you send that ambulance of grace, you write us a ticket of truth of what brought us to that place to begin with so that we may not repeat that in the days and seasons ahead. God, forgive us when we offer up the same excuses that Gideon offered up, excuses of an inferiority complex, excuses of of fear, excuses of the impossibility, the excuses of God, well, where have you been in my life? Would you give us the grace, God, to never say, but, Lord. But that our first two words will always be, yes, Lord, sovereign God, yes. Father, you've given us many covenant promises that when you forgive our sin, our sin is no more. You remember our sin no more. You've given us many covenant promises, God, that you have sent your son Jesus, and that once we're found in Christ, we are always in Christ. But Father, in my humble opinion this morning, the most beautiful covenant promise I've heard you say through your word is that I will be with you. So God, we rejoice in that this morning. We're overwhelmed by that truth this morning. Thanks for your great love and a grace that always comes in after you poke us with truth. The Lord has wounded us, but on the third day he will heal us. Through Christ Jesus we pray, amen.